Perspective is a powerful thing. If you see police lights outside of someone's house, what are you thinking? Probably something like, uh-oh, I wonder what happened over there. But if you're inside the house and the police just arrested an armed burglar, it could be the very best day of your life. I'm super grateful for those lights outside my house. Okay, but that's an easy example when it comes to perspective. But where did your mind go about policing when you watched the video of the George Floyd murder? Or how about when southeastern Wisconsin was all over the news with the Jacob Blake shooting and then the riots that followed? What was your perspective on cops and the response then? Now, here's where perspective gets really, really tricky. Let's pretend you're the chief of police when these things happen. Thousands of people are waiting for your response about these issues. What do you say? Telling the public stats about crime being lowered under your tenure will not help, but it could be true. Burglary at an all-time low in your city? That does not matter. Theft and vandalism were up 100% for those businesses in Kenosha and Minneapolis, so talking about your successes here is not going to help. And how do you lead your officers effectively, bolstering their confidence while also not giving into the geopolitical aspect of your role? Where do you start? What do you say? How do you not break under the pressure? Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast, where we believe that no one drifts into excellence. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and this episode is 18 months in the making. Chief Art Howell of the Racine Police Department is my guest, and the conversation was absolutely worth the wait. After more than three decades of being on the force, Chief Howell has led with consistency, wisdom, and he has strengthened our community during crisis. He won't take credit for it, as you'll see. <laughs> A sweet side note is that this episode is being published only two weeks from his retirement. So what you're hearing in this episode is a man looking back on his experience while feeling the warmth of the next phase of life. Listen with a willingness to have your perspective challenged. If you do, I think you'll have a few, well, I never thought of it that way, moments. Tons of application, and that's enough for me. Here's my conversation with Chief Art Howell of the Racine Police Department. Why did you get into law enforcement originally? I look back on it, and it is a spiritual journey, but regular things happened along that path. And so in 1980, when I graduated from high school, like everybody in my neighborhood, I mean, there's this industrial community where my dad, everybody's dad either worked at Case Company, Jacobs and Massey Ferguson, uh, Chrysler. So a lot of jobs, but in 1980, uh, there were gas lines, there were like, there's a recession. Mm -hmm. And so most people that would have filtered into those jobs, those jobs just weren't there. And, uh, and so in my case, we had uh, kind of a, a neighborhood leader uh, by the name of Thelma Orr, and who she looked at the, the fire department, police department. She saw that there was a disparate number of females, uh, people of color. So she encouraged uh, those of us in the neighborhood who she thought had the aptitude to do that job to apply. When I applied for the job, at, it was uh, at Parkside, uh, and there was almost 800 people in that group of people, and I'm thinking, there's no way. Yeah. Could you imagine going to a job interview? No, 800. And 800 people just applying, and so clearly there's a divine intervention in that whole thing, because uh, sure. I'm sure 
out of that 800 people, there are people who are more qualified than I to do the job. And so, uh, but that's how I got into it. Uh, someone who saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself that early on. And, uh, and then along the path, there were other things that happened that prepared me to be the chief that, but it, this happened over the course of 20 plus years. So I could share a million different things that happened that were, helped me get to where I am. So I know you are a, a very humble guy. Uh, but I think it will help paint a picture for those listening in that don't that don't know you. So tell us about your progression on the police force. How did you get to where you are as chief? So it's kind of an exciting story. So 1984, I'm hired. By 1986, the city of Racine had, uh, we started to experience gang problems, and we had never had a gang unit in the city before. And, uh, you know, our gang unit ultimately rose to be a pretty impressive group of people who worked with the FBI. But when I was involved in it, I had two years on, uh, they put me in the car with a senior detective, Dean Stanton. Dean Stanton was like the smart end of the tape, right? So I'm, I'm a young person and they put me in the gang unit because I was close in age to the people that we needed to deal with, right? So I could establish this rapport. Uh, but, but, but by virtue of being, working with uh, Dean Stanton, he was a seasoned veteran detective. I learned how to do search warrants, sworn affidavits. I mean. You, you can't even take a, an exam to be a detective until you have five years on. But here I am wow. in the squad car with two years on Yeah, because of this unique set of circumstances that the city was experiencing at the time. So now I'm technically not eligible to become a detective, but I'm working with one every day and learning. And so that was kind of that's a divine intervention that I look back on later. It's like, wow, I got an opportunity to do this job on the job training yeah. <laughs> before anybody had a chance to really, you know, I couldn't even test for the job. But I was uh, was in a position. So that was, you know, one of the things that I look back on. And then I had some opportunities um, with some great field training officers. Uh, I think the training that happens at the Racine Police Department is just second to few. Uh, you know, you learn so much. There's so many different things to do, uh, from being an evidence technician uh, to being a detective, traffic investigations, uh, and it just goes on and on. We have canines. Uh, you know, we have drug agents. We have human trafficking investigators. I mean, it's just amazing the level of sophistication that goes into the training of the people who serve on the Racine Police Department. I was able to experience that early on. So then you, you're on two years, you're getting to ride around, you're in, a, in this position. Did that then set you on a trajectory that was like fast-tracked? Was that like, what does it look like, uh, you know, from there as an officer? Like, how do you progress to chief? Uh, I, I wouldn't say fast-tracked, but, but what happened was, okay, so I had this unique experience as a young officer to work with a detective. And so I, it, it certainly accelerated my development and my growth. And so coming out of that experience, I became a traffic investigator. Uh, then I became a, a detective and then I became a sergeant. And then when I became a sergeant, uh, normally what would happen is you would go and you would be a patrol sergeant immediately. I was tapped by uh, Chief Polzin at the time uh, to be the planning sergeant. Now, that was another um, area where I know that there's some divine intervention involved uh, at that time. So I'm, uh, I'm a young sergeant and uh, I'm working for the chief. I'm writing grants uh, to build the COP house infrastructure. Um, I'm also uh, the planning sergeant. I'm also the spokesperson for the department. And so this is in the 90s when the crime rate was pretty high at that time. We mm -hmm. were, uh, Wisconsin, we're seeing was the highest per capita with part one crime in the state. So it was wow. a pretty bad time. And so 
whenever there would be any major event that would happen, I would have to, I would be the voice of the chief, right? So I'd have to meet with the chief on a regular basis to make sure that I was communicating sure. the message yeah. that he wanted to get. So I had to speak, I couldn't speak in my voice. I had to speak in the chief's voice. And, yeah. so, and so I learned a lot of discipline at that time. I would also write documents for the chief and I can remember going into his office. He was always really encouraging. Even when, even when my documentation was not up to his standard, it wasn't up to par, he would never, you know, be discouraging. He would say, you know, okay, we're getting there. You know, <laughs> but what that meant was, hey, that sounds like it came from you. I need it to sound yeah. like it came from, Try again. from me. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but those are, you know, I look back on that and that's all about grooming and, and, you know, can yeah. you, can you inspire somebody without like tearing them down? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and so, and again, and this is as a sergeant, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually meeting with the chief on a daily basis, right. Uh, to the extent that sometimes even higher ranking members were not mm-hmm. they, because of their roles. And so, um, yeah, there was definitely uh, an acceleration that happened, uh, but it was by proximity. Sure. You know, it was a lot of different things that just fell into place. So then what year was it that you became chief? Uh, that was in 2012. 2012, okay. And uh, to give perspective to, to those outside of our local area, uh, what is the size of the Racine Police Force? Like, how would you describe that to somebody? If you average out our staffing over the years, We've had 200 officers for the most part. We've gone a little higher and a little lower, but we average out at about 200. So the unique thing, though, back when uh, Chief Polzine was chief and we started all the community policing initiatives, we had about 89,000 people in the community. And so when you look at it from the perspective of, uh, you know, weighted percentage, I mean, we had significantly a small number of officers to manage that large number yeah. of people. To complicate that, so now we're we're on this I-94 corridor between Milwaukee and Chicago. So you have these major metropolitan areas that have significantly larger police forces. Yep. And so what happened in Racine is we had a small town footprint for law enforcement, but we had big city problems. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so we learned really quickly that we had to, in order to really be successful, we had to leverage some partnerships with like the FBI, DEA, ATF in order to really be successful. Okay. So those of us from the outside might uh, assume we understand, but we definitely don't. <laughs> we So help direct us. Talk a bit about how you view policing and how things have evolved over the years. So, yeah, if, we, if you start around the early 80s when I became involved, that's when, uh, you know, the 70s was about professionalism. It used to be like in the 50s and the 60s, like your weight had to be proportionate to your height. And policing mm. was mostly all about intimidation. It was about brute strength, right? If I can't get you to comply, then I can basically physically manipulate you into compliance. Sure. Uh, Over time, we learned that uh, the profession grew, right? It became more professional. It became more diverse. uh, And so now you're bringing more women into the profession, bringing more people of color. And so, and the the beauty of that was, you know, the police – the par- police departments need to have some type of connectivity to the communities that they're policing. Otherwise, they, they appear to be like occupying forces. Mm. And so uh, we and then we also learned that uh, when we had more females uh, in, in policing, we learned that uh, in general, um, sometimes they're better at communicating and not so much relying on their size yeah. uh, to, to, you know, to get them through. They're relying on their you know, ability to resolve conflict you know, through de-escalation. And so that's, so the profession has definitely progressed that way. Technology has made a difference as well. 
in our profession and it has made us more professional. But I would just say, uh, you know, going back from the 50s and the 60s uh, to the 80s and the 90s, uh, the organizations just became more diverse, uh, more technologically savvy and more dependent upon um, training, uh, conflict resolution, crisis intervention. Uh, 90% of what we do doesn't require a weapon. It just mm-hmm. requires verbal skills and uh de-escalation skills. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that leads really well into the next thing having to do with 2020. Um, so I think it's safe to say that 2020 has been rough. Uh, it's been rough on most people, uh, some specifically because of their occupation. Right. Uh, the police have been highlighted by the media on a national level and right. mainly uh, from from a civilian standpoint, my standpoint, I think mainly in a negative light. Sure. Um, can you talk to us a bit about how you've had to adapt as a leader during this season of increased tension? So let's let's just level set first. So yeah. so two, two, 2020 has definitely been uh, kind of a watershed moment for a lot of folks. But if you really you could go back is go back to 2012, starting with uh, Trayvon Martin. And that wasn't a police officer event. That was a neighborhood watch situation with George Zimmerman. However, that was a catalyst for a lot of the movement that we see now. And then then you go to Ferguson with Mike Brown, New York, Eric Garner, you know, uh, Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And we could go on and on and on. And so it, so when we when we made it to 2020 with George Floyd, that wasn't the catalyst. That was mm-hmm. like kind of the final straw. And so mm-hmm. so we've been dealing with this for about eight years. And then if you go back to early 90s, 91, 92, you're looking at the Rodney King era. The unique difference between these two eras is in 92, I mean, the social media wasn't quite where it is now. Right. And so right. uh, so the Rodney King thing never went global, um, but the, obviously the George Floyd event did. And so from a leadership perspective, um, you have to view uh, how you respond to it through a larger lens, right? If you just focus on the George Floyd tragedy, you miss out on this 360-degree environment, right? So this has been building. It didn't start with George Floyd, right? So from a leadership perspective, there's a, so you have three communities you have to deal with, right? So starting with the officers, right? So the officers have to know that the community is behind them, right? And so so this was a difficult job pre-George Floyd, right? It's a next to impossible job post-George Floyd, Mm -hmm. right? So the first thing you have to do, so there's three different constituencies that as a leader, like you have to lead, right? Most intimately, the officers, right? They, They see you. And they see how you respond, and you know if you know subject to how you respond, that's going to influence them. And so you have to. So what we've done in the Racine Police Department, uh, we've asked some of our local leaders, who whom we have great support locally. And uh, I don't want to get into naming the individual names because I could sure. I could leave someone out. But the the simple fact is, our community has really supported us. You know, emotionally, uh, financially, and they even you know community leaders have even come to our roll calls. Uh, to not only buy pizza and donuts for the for the troops, but to tell them, you know, hey, we back you, we admire you, we appreciate you, and you know whatever we can do to support you. And so our local leaders have come to do that. That's one con- constituency. Then you have the geopolitical, you know. So when there's budget cuts and there's a loss of shared mm-hmm. revenue, and you know nobody wants to pay higher taxes, but nobody wants roadways that are you know not travel you can't travel on them right. and, and, yeah. and nobody wants less police or less fire but so there's that whole geopolitical environment but then there's the people you serve and that's the community right and if they don't trust you if they don't respect you it, uh, then it's going to be very difficult to do this job and so from a leadership perspective 
you have to be extremely um, savvy to understand. You have these three completely different constituencies, all of whom are looking to you for leadership, all of whom have different vantage points, all of whom demand your leadership and you have to deliver and you have to deliver in a manner that is balanced so that one side doesn't believe that, you know, the other side is getting too much attention and they're not getting enough. And so, I mean, and, you know, and I'll just be direct. Like if you, I, my personal belief, if you're not spiritually grounded, you're not going to be able to deliver on all those fronts because if you cater to any one group without a cognizance of what how that's going to impact the other groups and you won't be successful you know and even when you do a great job i mean not everybody's going to see it you know and so you just have to you just have to you know you have to be grounded and you have to be spirit led and have the confidence that you know i'm i'm working to do what's in the interest of the whole not any one of these individual parts so that that helps a ton and uh, i was going to ask so what what held you together <laughs> what, did you, what was what was the what was the guiding thing you know you, you've touched on that a couple times about like the the inner uh, inner life riff on that a little bit of your perspective of the inner life before the public side what needs to be in place you know there yeah so I look back you know like I was baptized at like 12 years old right so so there's an awareness that happens yeah <laughs> at some point in most sometimes it happens later for other people but I was pretty fortunate you know like you know my I had a you know nuclear family mom and dad there you know uh, and but then when I look at my neighborhood you know I had an opportunity to see you know people who thrived and then I had an opportunity to see people who didn't and uh, and so there's this unique opportunity I was like you know if I look at this as this petri dish that I grew up in you know there's a lot of stuff going on and uh, but but I think it starts with uh, you know just the fan when I look at my family I, I I I can determine how I was spiritually molded for this opportunity mm -hmm. and uh, so that's where it starts but then you know then when I get into the community uh, this community is phenomenal um, you know starting with like uh, you know major or corporations like S C Johnson mm -hmm. then the Racine Community Foundation you know for, with the philanthropy uh, it's just amazing. Uh, you know how, as a leader, uh, it, it's great to be grounded, but you, but you, you know, spiritually grounded is the is the core. But then, you know, how much support do you get? We have some great leaders in the community uh, here uh, who uh, I've been in, you know, and some Bible study groups with uh, several local leaders, and it's just great to know that, you know, yeah, you have an amazing challenge in front of you, but you you're not facing it alone. You, there's people out here who would, you know, whatever I need. For the troops, you know, I know that there's people in the community that I can go That's to. good. So you've, over the years, experienced uh, difficult decisions and loss, like many of us listening in, including myself, won't, won't understand. Right. Regardless of our titles, uh, you're, you're on the front lines of that, literally and figuratively. So based on your experiences, I think we all have something to learn there. So I'd like, if you if you could, to walk us through how you navigate the most difficult moments as chief. What what steps do you or did you take when facing a, a mountain of potential volatility in front of you? Yeah. So so let's just start. Let's just start before there's a crisis, right? Yeah. Good. So so you know it's it's about you know hardening, you know, and uh, kind of the iron sharpens iron. And so like mm -hmm. away from work, I'm like a. I'm a church musician, right? So I like I play bass in a worship group. And so at one time, uh, 
you know, there was this push to try to get me to become a deacon at the church. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was like, listen, like I'm a church musician. And so there's enough drama and stress. Like when I, when I'm at work, I, you know, I don't want to get involved sure. in uh, church politics. Right. Yeah. Cause there's that. Um, I, but I said, when I'm, when I'm at church in the, in the role of a musician, right. As a worship uh, participant, like that's therapeutic for me. And so, so I think that helps me. So when there's a crisis, it's the pre-event mm-hmm. stuff. So there's that piece. When there was an event that actually occurs, what I try to do is just get as much information as possible, remain level-headed. I mean, and I, we, we, we had um, obviously we had we've had um, high-profile events in our community over the years, and uh, and I can recall walking through those events, and uh, the main thing that I try to do, especially when there's troops around, right. You have to have this presence of calm, right? Mm-hmm. And and, and uh, I, I can recall. I'll give you this quick example. I can recall um, there's a bomb threat at a local school, and so it got it it, it got to the point where parents were calling me because many of them had my cell number. So I go to the school and I see the principal is is running around with a radio, and there was and the principal was really frantic, and I think the principal didn't realize this, but they were really destabilizing the atmosphere. Oh, yeah. So I pulled the principal aside and I said, listen, you know, I says, first of all, whether you're talking about Columbine or, you know, Newtown or any other tragedy, people generally don't announce when they're going to do something major. They, they just do it. So I says, so what you really need to understand is even though we had this threat, it's probably not credible, mm-hmm. but we're here just in case something would occur. I says, but what I need you to do is I need you to modify your your you know disposition children are watching you and they're calling their parents and their parents are calling me so and i took that particular event to to know that whenever we're in a crisis like every all eyes are on the leaders right Mm -hmm. so we have to have this sense of like you know calm and uh yeah we're navigating through some difficult waters but you know what Uh, we're gonna do it methodically and we're gonna you know, we're going to get through it, um, but it's going to take, you know, some calm and some patience. Right. And so th- there's that piece. And then, you know, from that point forward, um, you learn from, you know, you try to look at best practices. I mean, who's what other organizations have dealt with these issues? What did they do well? What did they not do so well? Mm-hmm. And uh, how can we uh, find a way to learn from, you know, the past and uh, carry that forward? And so and then just you just have to uh, you have to understand that these events are bigger than one person. So I can't solve it by myself and I can't feel as though I have all the answers. I have to be humble enough to, to look outward. And, uh, and, and that, and that, and we've been successful with that formula for the most part. That's helpful. It's really helpful to hear you say that it becomes a whirlwind of who's, who's going to be the calm stabilizing presence in this thing. Right. And not getting swept into somebody else's emotional state going into this next, this next part, uh, our mayor, was quoted as saying that your leadership was, and I wrote it down here so I didn't mess it up, but transformative. And he also said, uh, there will eventually be a new chief of police, but there will never be another chief Howell. Okay. And I know you're a humble guy and I know that's probably nails on a chalkboard for you to hear that maybe, but looking back, how do you view your success in role of chief of police? Like what, how do how would you define success? Yeah, so that is difficult to, to respond to that. But I, I will say this, right? So when I look back at my career, and I kind of shared early on this trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, I think I had this unique opportunity 
to experience some things that not everyone gets a chance to experience. And so, um, so to the extent that I had people in my path that helped me get to this level, I have to, I have to pay that forward. Right. Mm -hmm. So I have to figure out a way to replicate, replicate that. Um, as far as, um, the transformational part, I would agree that what has occurred over the last 28 years has been transformational, but how I can take myself off the hook is to understand that the transformation wasn't about one person. It wasn't about one chief. I mean, like yep. we've had four chiefs during that time, but even more important than the chiefs, you know, are the people who actually were on the front line doing the work. And, and so, yeah, the, the leadership, you know, it's kind of like the quarterback in football. Sometimes you get too much praise and, and too much blame. <laughs> sure. You know, sure. there's the 10 other people on the field and subject to how they respond, mm -hmm. the play could go really, I mean, you could have the most brilliant coaches, but if the players don't execute, you know, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, it warms my heart that I get that type of recognition, but the reality is that, over the last 28 years, I mean, there's a lot of names that you have to color in mm -hmm. to get to where we are now. That's good. This next one will be a, a little bit easier for, for you to handle <laughs> because, it's, because it's less about you <laughs> okay. specifically, all right? Uh, but, but based on your knowledge, let's say someone is interested in being an officer and asks you to, to lunch to talk about it, okay? What advice do you give them? Great question. So, so it, I can, and I can kind of give you some real-time uh, you know, feedback on this. So I, I had four people I interviewed last week. And aside from the general questions that we ask, I was very curious as to, I said to him, with everything that has happened this year, why would you seek mm -hmm. to be in this profession that's often vilified, you put your life on the line, but people, some people don't understand it or respect it or appreciate it. And the responses I got back to a person was that that made me want to be an officer even more. Mm. And so what I would tell people is just to just examine why they want to do it, right? Do you want to do it because someone in your family did it? Do you want to do it because you want to give back? Do you want to do it because... You, you know, you want to change the perspective of the profession. And uh, and and so your heart's got to be in the right place. It's not a it's not a job that you go into like fantasizing about what you know, I would just give them the advice. I figured out what they what's what's their motivation. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, well, do some ride alongs. Talk to some people that are in the profession. Make sure you have a, a full appreciation for the sacrifice. Yeah. It's almost like going into the military. Uh, you're not going to become rich, uh, but you know you can be enriched, you know, through the service. That's really good. Um, so as we start to wind down the interview, I'd like to hear a little bit about the non-headline stuff of leadership. So, uh, <laughs> who or what has had the greatest impact on your leadership journey? And many, many names. I start with my my parents. I mean, so I look at my journey, and that's where you know the discipline. I can remember my mom, like uh, I wasn't the you know, I wasn't the first person up in the house. Like, so okay. but they were, my dad, he had to be at his job at like 6.30 a.m. So they were up at like five. And, and so, so the discipline to get up and go and, and to understand what that looks like, that comes from home. You know, and then my family, my wife is probably like the most supportive. If you're married to a law enforcement officer, that's very difficult 
job because mm-hmm. the phone rings at two, three in the morning and there's vacations that don't go as planned. There's Christmas, there's Thanksgiving. Mm. Uh, that's, I think it, I probably worked 15 years before I was off on the 4th of July. Wow. I mean, so there's all the sacrifice. But then, you know, once you get away from the core stuff, family, uh, you know, then I look at like in the community. I mean, we had some major mentors in the community and people like Marge Kozna, who ran the Community Foundation. Liz Powell runs it now. Um, we've got, uh, you know, folks like Ernie Steiberg, uh, you know, Tom Burke, you know, obviously Fisk Johnson, Jim Ladwig. I mean, you know, just it just goes on and mm-hmm. on in terms of, you know, in this community, if you want to be successful, mm-hmm. there's there's this unique this about Racine where it's it's all interconnected if you if you're hungry there's places to you know eat here mm. you know in terms of leadership right the number of people who have poured into this community and so and I just named uh, named a handful of them we we have a phenomenal community and and the 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 success that we've achieved at a law enforcement level is really due in part to the support we get from the business community uh, the last question that I have for you is it 36 years that you've been? Almost 37. Let's just round up. <laughs> so the last question, after, after 37 years yeah. um, with the police department and, and rounding, you know, again, eight-ish as chief, what would you like to leave with the leaders that are listening in on our conversation? And it can be about police. It can be about leadership. It can be about whatever. But with all of that experience, what would you want to leave people that are listening in on this with? Communities make a difference. And so, like, I can look at police departments that have great leaders but don't necessarily have the support of the community and then they don't have the outcomes we have. I can tell you just just based on some of the things that we've done in our COP houses from homework assistance to human trafficking management, I mean, the large majority of what we do, we, we accomplish it through these public-private partnerships. And so we have great police officers. We have great training uh, but what we have is that's kind of the secret ingredient that not everybody sees is uh, what the community does. And so if you're in a, any given community across the country and there's going to be something that you may not like about your community and if it is connected to law enforcement, I, I would uh, strongly encourage you to get involved. Contact the chief, contact the public information officer, see if they have a website, see if they have a, a Citizens Police Academy uh, if they don't have one, suggest that they have one. If they have, if you have a neighborhood watch, uh, try to get involved in it. Um, and, and and really, the core message there is, um, you know, it's very easy to criticize, you know, an agency. Uh, but then the main question is, I mean, if there's something that you can do to make it better, you got to consider what that would be. And and there's plenty of best practices. Uh, we just published a book this year that I'm technically leaving with the community. 28 years of problem solving policing that happened well beyond my tenure as chief. It, it, you know, it, it happened well prior to and it should happen afterwards. But we put this binder together. It's called the COP House Playbook where other communities can learn what we did and and kind of learn from that and then build on it and make it even better. That's a good word. Well, Chief Howell, thank you so much for serving our community. Thank you for the time and um, thank you for what you have been for you know folks that that needed a steady source. And um, I'm grateful for that. So thank you for serving our community so well. Bless you. Thank you for having me. All right, so takeaways and action items. Takeaways. Number one, my city has been so fortunate to have Chief Howell all these years. Number two, 
I told you that you'd hear it, and I'm sure you noticed it. This guy, this man, would not take credit. The people before him helped set it up. The experiences and training prepared him. The community leaders encouraged his troops. The church kept him spiritually grounded. His wife served as solid ground personally. And in his own words, he needs to get out of the way so that the next person can fly. We have had a great and exceptional example of leadership in my city. Well done, Chief Howell. Action items. You probably have a chief of police. Get to know them. Number two, encourage your local officers. Maybe ask that chief of police, can I come to roll call and just say some good words? Of course, when it's safe. If you're a person of faith, can I pray with the officers? Food drop-offs. Apparently, (laughs) uh, cops do eat donuts, according to chief. Those are his words. Uh, But food drop-offs, written, handwritten notes, that's very encouraging. Just let the officers in your local community know that you see and appreciate their roles, even if you can't fully understand the weight that they carry. To get more content, you can go to ccbtechnology.com slash podcast. You will have access to dozens and dozens of conversations similar to this one with the point of helping aid in your growth as a leader. We don't care what your title is, but if you have influence, you are a leader. So go to ccbtechnology.com slash podcast to bolster your leadership. And if you're listening on your phone, please click subscribe. You can share this with a friend or a colleague uh, or your chief of police and consider giving us a five-star rating and possibly typing out a review. It, It helps spread the word. We appreciate it big time. And as always, from all of us here at CCB Technology, thank you for listening.